I don't want to give the impression that I live my life in suits. I, I don't. I like. I I like jeans, good jeans, mm-hmm. uh, and and so there's two sides to the way I dress. One is for formal occasions when I'm working at serious work, but I also dress casually at work when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I do remember uh, buying once buying a gold lame shirt with a frill down the front <laughs> that would have been really ideal for Jimi Hendrix to wear. <laughs> This is the Gilded Thread Podcast. I am Irene O'Brien and I have a long-standing obsession with the role of clothing in our lives. We are definitely living in a time when so many of us have the platform to broadcast every minute of our own lives, should we choose. I wanted to hear from those people whose stories are perhaps a little less shared and learn about their lives as recalled through their style memories. Today, I am chatting with Eddie Shanahan, a name synonymous with the Irish fashion industry. I was dying to chat to Eddie about how it all started for him and what keeps him passionate about the ever-changing fashion business landscape. Eddie Shanahan, thank you so much for joining me today. Not at all, it's a pleasure. Whether you know it or not, I think the name Eddie Shanahan has, I've heard it for, for, for many years now, whenever there's any kind of discussion of, particularly with me, it was always whenever I heard something about a fashion show, some years ago, it was always fashion show and there was... Eddie Shannon, it was kind of, you know, your name would be would be spoken as um, the expert and as someone that people would consult in, in many different kind of parts of fashion. And, and anyone that I spoke to and said that I was going to speak to you today knew of you. And I thought that that was really interesting because they weren't necessarily in fashion either, you know. And um, one of the my friends who, who does work in fashion, she said, well, I don't know him, but I know that Eddie Shanahan is at the heart of nearly everything related to fashion <laughs> in Ireland. So what would you think about that? Oh, um, well, maybe you've very few friends. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, no, I, I, I work on show production. I work as part of a team. Mm-hmm. That's really important to me. Mm-hmm. And the team I work with now, I was probably working with 20 years ago or, wow, or longer. Really? And, and I owe a great deal to some collaborators along the way. Uh, many years ago, uh, a mutual friend introduced myself and, and the late Rupert Murray, um, a, a, a theatrical lighting designer beyond compare, really, in Ireland, as far as I'm concerned. He was also creative director of the Special Olympics, and unfortunately, he died shortly after that. Mm. But... Uh, Rupert and I met in Bewley's one Saturday morning and we had a discussion about lighting fashion shows, about using theatrical lighting. And then when we progressed to that level, we began to talk about theatre designers to design sets for us and things like that. Uh, and, and so it went. Uh, and I enjoyed that aspect of, of it because fashion is theatre and retail is theatre as well. Uh, and um, and then down through the years, I met other colleagues and we did things like take a show out of Ireland and tour France and Belgium for Marks and Spencers, for example. And when they asked, would I do it? I said, yes, but I've got to bring these people, those models, this stage, those lightings in these trucks. Yeah. And I think they thought I was nuts, but we did. We, we went on the road around France and Belgium. And um, those experiences led us to... Um, it led me to work with a young guy called Tom Kenny. Uh, and Tom is a Dubliner from just down the road uh, here in, in, in Ranala. And yesterday I got a note from him and uh, a job he's just done with Taylor Swift, you know. And wow. He brought me to, to Shea Stadium in New York to see a show he lit for um, Eric Clapton um, um, and who else was on it? Curtis Stigers and Elton John, you know. And he's had a credit from... Um, one of the Beatles on their albums and that. So I, I've been lucky to work with people like that. And I've also been lucky to work with some amazing designers. And I think it's when you get like minds together, you do, you do very good work. And I'm proud to say that in Ireland, we were using very sophisticated lighting and sets long before they were in London or Paris or New York. Mm. And did you find that a difficult sell, though? Because, you know, obviously you you had come together, you guys had decided together that the, this was going to be, make for a more special event and show. But I assume that the brands had to get behind you and the budgets had to be raised. Well, I was lucky, I suppose, uh, in, in the early days. Um, 
what really started me into fashion shows in the first place was a former girlfriend brought me to the old Gresham Hotel one night to see a fashion show and I'd never been at one of these events before and it was so peculiar. Um, There was a small catwalk, there was an elderly man at a grand piano and as the girls came out in something sporty he was playing a slow waltz and as they came out in something elegant he was playing something very sort of gavottish and and I thought this is all wrong and and the the women wearing the clothes were posing like a hen in the rain you know that very exaggerated pose and something just told me this is not how you should be selling fashion and I worked at Arnott's at the time with a brilliant retail director called John Doody and he had brought um an American exhibition to Arnott's and Henry Street where we had bits of moon rock and we had astronauts speaking to the public and we had yeah. Red Indians dancing, do, doing their cultural thing at lunchtime and, and all of that. And so it came to, to the fifth anniversary of Arnott's in Grafton Street uh, and Arnott's in Grafton Street had been opened by Jean Shrimpton a couple of weeks after she caused a storm at the Melbourne Racecourse for wearing a miniskirt. And... Um, you know, it made the nine o'clock news. So many people came to see her. So on the fifth anniversary, uh, John Doody said to me, um, need a bit of help now celebrating the fifth birthday. Will we bring Jean Shrimpton back? And I said, no, nobody will come and see her. And I almost got sacked for that. And he said, of course they will. And and we did bring her and very few people came to see her. And But that's the nature of celebrity that, you know, in five years, you, 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 you can be... But how did you know that? I just had this, this feeling mm. and... Uh, uh, I, I can't describe how I pick up trends. Sometimes it's just in the air. Um, uh, and uh, But my friend had a mobile disco and, and I asked him, could I borrow it? And I did a show in, in Arnott's in Grafton Street with, 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 with just seven inch discs. And um, I knew nothing about fashion shows other than the awful one I'd been to in the Gresham. <laughs> Uh, but I, I rang three or four model agencies in Dublin and I told them I was going to run the biggest show the city had ever seen. I booked three models for it. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> you would have to hide your head in shame if you did something like that these days. But anyway, during the casting, I was speaking to a girl called Inga Lil Palmgram, this brilliant Swedish model who, who worked in Dublin. And, and she said, oh, when I was coming... Up the stairs, I saw Michelle Walsh going down. Is are you? Is she going to be dancing on the show? Now Michelle Walsh was five foot six, and all I knew about models was that, that they were at least five foot eight mm-hmm. on a good day. Uh, and um, I, I said to her, "Dance!" And she said, "Oh yeah, she 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 does a lot of dancing on television." I said, "Do you mind waiting for a moment?" And I ran down and out into Grafton Street after Michelle Walsh and said, "Do you mind coming back in and waiting for a few minutes? I want to talk to you." So we had a conversation as to whether she would be able to dance on a small catwalk to Johnny Johnson and the bandwagon, blame it on the Pony Express. <laughs> I will never forget that. And then there was a, a, a brilliant uh, uh, buyer at Arnott's at the time. Uh, uh, and she had a habit of sitting in her car outside nightclubs, watching kids coming out to see what they were wearing. Mm. And when she heard the show I was going to do, she asked if I would go to London with her and we'd get some special clothes for it. And then in the window display department one day, I saw this Afro wig. So I asked Michelle if she'd wear the wig as well. And the the, 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 the idea at the time, of course, was that you would have a, a, a woman called a commer and she would sit on the stage and she would do the commentary. And there was one who, who was the, the, the madame, the, 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 the queen of the walk in that respect. And I was determined not to have her, to mm. move away from that. So I got this younger one uh, who, who had a, a bit of, of an edge to her, sort of. and But she still sat up on, on, well, she didn't. She actually sat at the side of the catwalk because I wouldn't let her sit up on it. Uh, and I operated the, 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 the discs and the newspapers exploded after that. Uh, and the next show I did, we took the models to the film Cabaret as a rehearsal. Wow. You know, and we, we, got, we, we imported the green lipstick and, and all of that. And we used the soundtrack and that just suddenly people were talking about it. And uh, the fashion editor of the Sunday Independent at the Times, Ita Hines, was really supportive uh, of what I was doing. And uh, uh, and one thing led to another. And then suddenly people were asking me, well, could I do one of these on my day off? You know, and I, I remember going to Galway for my first country show on my day off. 
and you know we didn't have motorways to Galway then so it was sort of half six in the morning it turned up to the minibus that was going to take us to Galway and these models turned up in full makeup hats and gloves and I thought this is nuts and then it, it slowly but surely we began to do more of these shows and some of the agencies were telling the models don't do it he tells you walk the way you always walked but the models were beginning to see the writing on the wall and they were having a good time and so so we we sort of generated um, a feeling for this right across the country and uh, then eventually it in time uh, I went to work for the International Wool Secretariat uh, and um, learned a lot about fashion internationally and that then and um, combined a, a lot of the work I did into setting up an agency oh, by accident with uh, my business partner back then, Elaine Doody. And so now we became to represent models and to produce shows, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere. And so I've, I've worked in, in Italy, France, Belgium, the States, London uh, on, on shows. But it's just shows are are are. Are are simple uh, if if you understand the dynamic of them. Mm. You're there to please an audience. You're there to do a job. We don't sit on white leather couches in the dressing room drinking Krug champagne. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, some days you don't get lunch, yeah, or dinner. Yeah, you know. And what? So what was your actual job in Arnott's at that time? Um, well, I started off as as a trainee uh, in in on on the shop floor in. Uh, Henry Street again by accident most of the things I do seem to be by accident I was working there for the summer during my school holidays what year was this do you oh god probably nine, in, in, around 1970 mm -hmm. or thereabouts mm -hmm. and um, I was approached by um, the um, uh, personnel uh, manager to help with training on decimalization so it would have been around 70 yeah. and then Shortly after that, I was approached by the general manager, retail general manager, who asked me, would I, would I join a management training program in Arnott's? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an agricultural scientist or a radio officer on a ship or something. I'm not going to be indoors. And he said, no, no, think about it. And uh, so I thought a bit about it. And he came back again and he said, look, we'll pay for lots of courses and training and things. And I quite liked wor working there for the summer and then I went back and said, yeah, I'll give it a go. And he said, okay, you'll have to do an exam. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> that wasn't part of the deal. <laughs> but to cut a long story short, I, I did reasonably well in the exam and I was offered a place. And then I decided I would, I would, I would try it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was in for a training period of a, sort of an apprenticeship period of three years, but two and a quarter years in, I was made assistant manager of Arnott's in Grafton Street, which was a women's store yeah. at the time. And um, that gave me scope then to do some more shows in the store, to develop uh, beauty promotions with, with labels like Mary Quant, who was the big beauty mm, company yeah. at the time. Um, I, I actually went to work for the company that represented Mary Quant after Arnott's uh, and then went to the International Wool Secretariat. But all of those things added up. So I had a retail experience. The beauty experience taught me a lot about photography and marketing. Then I went to the International Wool Secretariat and I learned how the fashion industry works from literally from fleece to fabric to fashion itself. Mm. Uh, and then we started Elaine's model management where we combined all of those things together. And uh, Elaine stayed with me for 10 years. And when she moved away, I uh, to get married and that I continued uh, the business for another five years. And then I was made an offer by Arnott's to come back to Arnott's when they had doubled the size of Henry Street. And I was there for just over nine years as director of merchandising and marketing. And then uh, I set up my own consultancy, and which is what I do now. So production of shows is still part of what I, I don't do so many of them because I believe that the audience deserves a standard of entertainment. And that means a standard of budget. And if you have the budget, I'll do the show. And if you don't, I won't. But that doesn't mean every show has to cost millions. Some of the best shows I've done have been in unusual venues or places, yeah. you know, down a staircase in a beautiful house, for example. Uh, when I've worked with my friend Sharon Wokob in Paris, we've done shows in churches, we've done shows in university corridors, we've done shows in all sorts of places. And they bring a certain amount of intrigue and curiosity, you know. So, um, uh, But I do a lot of consultancy work now with um, 
with small uh, craft uh, enterprises, with fashion enterprises. I chair the Council of Irish Fashion Designers, which is now about 11 years old, and that's very exciting, you know, and I'm lucky now that I only do take on jobs that I like. Yeah. I mean, I'm so struck by listening to that. I would have thought anyway, from your credentials and from what I know, that, you know, you're definitely someone with a growth mindset. You're clearly, you know, always learning. And and I suppose if you're, if you're teaching and guiding, you, you need to be doing that. But also, I'm just struck there when you're talking, you obviously you kind of had the courage of your convictions. You had some ideas and then you went with it. You're talking about, you know, someone letting you know, um, or, or bringing a dancer onto your show and then the next time going over to, to London and, and kind of all the different influences. You're obviously learning each time. But I was going to just take you back a little bit because I'm also so struck about what you said you thought you were going to do after school because I thought that maybe you were going to say, you know, young Eddie Edmund when he was growing up you know was exposed to a lot of style or fashion and and, and it sparked an appetite but is that the case at all or, or um, what, what y- were you yes and no uh, f- first of all uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with with your view you should never stop learning mm-hmm. you know if somebody said what is the best piece of advice I could give anyone that's it and I was very lucky as a child. My parents bought me books every Christmas. They bought other toys, but we always had books. There's always reading in the house. Uh, so that was a, a, a key starting point. I was also enthralled as a small child by my father's hunting clothes. Mm. Uh, the beautiful riding jacket uh, with the brass buttons that he used to polish. Uh, the leather boots that he would he would clean after a day's hunting. He'd come in and he'd sit down by the fire and he would clean them that evening, not not leave them till the next day. <laughs> the 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 ritual of putting on the stock and the way it was tied and the pins that held it down, uh, the ticket pockets in the jackets, the quality of the fabrics, uh, and all of that, and the respect that he showed his his clothes. Uh, and and the things he took from from that uniform, if you want to call it that, uh, into the the way he had his suits made and so on, uh, that still stands to me this to this day. And and to me, I still judge a fashion designer's ability and understanding of luxury by their understanding of those rituals mm. and, and that tailoring and that sense of quality. Uh, and but but I was also lucky that I grew up in the countryside outside the city, you know, and where so was that? We, we had, well, um, originally um, I, I was born in, in County Leash, but um, I only lived there for a very small, short space of time, about 11 months. And then we moved to this beautiful house in uh, a place called Lis Rennie outside RD in County Louth. And, and we were there for about two or three years and my father had a really serious riding accident. Like oh. he literally broke every bone except two in his body. Oh my gosh. And uh, while he recovered, we went to live with my grandfather for two years in Clonmel. Uh, uh, but again, that was a, a, a beautiful town at the time and it had a river and great walks and that. So we, we were in the country, if you like. Uh, and then uh, we came to, to Dublin, just ne- right next door to where I live now. Uh, and uh, I was about five at that stage. So I consider myself even still, though I'm only 10 miles from O'Connell Street, living in the country. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, that has influenced the way that I live my life, the way I think about things and the values I've got. So that whole childhood um, was really important. Uh, and while I work in fashion, I hate the fashion business. I love the business of fashion. Right. And that's a, a, an important distinction with me. I don't like the noise and the nonsense, mm-hmm. uh, the so-called influencers, uh, the charlatans. But I, I love designers who can make you stop and stare in awe of their skill and craftsmanship. Mm. Uh, can you recall when that first ever happened for you? When a designer really made a big impression on you? I'm not sure I'd I'd be able to put them chronologically. No, uh, but there were there, there there were some designers through the years. I I had the great fortune to meet Sybil Connolly. Oh, really? And to be invited to her house for tea, uh, because when I was at IWS, I I used to run a student design competition, and uh, we asked the great and the good to come and be a judge, and 
I, I asked Sybil Connolly, would she do it? And she said, oh, young man, you'll have to come and talk to me at tea. So I went <laughs> oh, to Merrill Square and, 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 you know, met by this gentleman in white gloves and all that. And I had a wonderful conversation with a really, really lovely woman. And uh, she showed me um, some of the pleated linen that, that she used, you know, nine meters to make one meter in that. And I, I was lucky to do many years later, long after she passed, to do a project where we were allowed to photograph some of the dresses in her archive, which is down in the Hunt Museum in Limerick. Uh, but she uh, gave me some garments to show on the show. Uh, we did we used to do a big fashion show in Jury's Hotel Ballroom uh, for, for the student designers who participated. And we would always ask the guest if they were a designer to show something. And the construction of her clothes were quite extraordinary. She used horsehair in the collars of the coats to make them stand out. She was definitely one. Um, I, and can I, sorry for interrupting, I'm intrigued by it because didn't, didn't she call that the, the house that Lennon built? Yes, she, oh, I, absolutely. I, I'm yeah. intrigued as to, just before you move on from her, what was the house like? <laughs> well, well, I was just in, in the drawing room downstairs uh, and it was just an elegant drawing room, a little bit... Uh, of, of of the ilk you might have seen in Brideshead Revisited. You really? Know, the, okay, that's the, good. That's what the, I was hoping you'd say. And the China Cups and, and all of that were there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it 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 was a it was an easy elegance. I remember. Uh, I expected her to be a lot more maybe severe, but I found her uh, to to be very easy to speak to mm. and very open. And there wasn't a lot of ego around. Now others might say differently, you know, but. And she was a much bigger influence than we would ever imagine because um, I I went to the Hunt Museum to research their archives and the press cuttings that she generated in America are extraordinary. Mm. And, the, and the way she spoke on behalf of women and women's rights and women's place in the home and women's contribution to family and, and to, to industry was quite extraordinary and and people should recognize her for that she was quite singular in her vision at that stage back in the 50s mm. it must have been really special for you then to to be able to celebrate her in that way then oh yeah yeah, yeah. um we did a lovely project it was a photographic project with my friend the photographer Agata Stoyinska and we we asked the Hunt Museum if they would let us photograph the collection and I can remember bringing uh, a small team down to see it. And when you turned the dresses inside out, you could have worn them that way. They were oh, so beautifully wow. made. And one of the people, I, I could see tears coming down her eyes in, as we were standing in the room, you know. And what we did then was we commissioned five Irish designers to make a piece, knowing they were going to be photographed side by side with Sybil Connolly. And then we used only a black and white medium for the photographs. And the idea was to blur the lines, so maybe you couldn't tell which was which, mm. you know. And uh, do you remember a, what designers were involved in that? Um, I, I, I do. Eilish Boyle was still designing at the mm. time. Edmund McNulty was was involved in it. Um, th there was a, a young girl who had just graduated from Limerick School of Art. Uh, I, 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 her name escapes me at the moment. So there were there was an unusual group of, mm. of, of designers, but mm. it was just a lovely project. Yeah, uh, lovely project. And um, I know I interrupted you there to ask about the house that Anna built, but the, you were about to mention another designer. I think that had come oh, to your oh, head. Several other designers. I, I mean, uh, a couple of years back, uh, I I got involved with the Ark Charity again by accident, uh, and uh, put it to them to raise funds that we should do a big fashion show. And and they said, great. And then I said, it'll be all Irish. And you could see the blood draining from their faces. <laughs> and But it did become a fashion show that's all Irish. Mm. And on that show, we've had some extraordinary... Helen Cody did a finale for me that just blew the, 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 the roof off the RDS almost. Um, I mentioned Eilish Boyle. When Eilish was designing, she just... Uh, the, the simplicity of her collections... Uh, the, the choice of fabrics, the silhouettes, just amazing. Uh, Sharon Wokob, uh, I think, is an extraordinary designer, and I've been lucky to work with her a couple of times. Uh, and uh, just her collections, year after year, used to amaze me when she was showing in Paris. She's since moved to London, but I remember one collection. There were three fabrics layered, one over the other, in a single shirt. But that was just for the show, yeah. because you, you couldn't afford to buy that shirt, you know. 
uh, but she had slashed the fabrics, so they moved, and you saw the ones underneath as the models walked in them. You know, how amazing! And then I I worked on a project with a shoe designer. Uh, her name was Nina Devito, an Irish girl um, of Italian descent. And uh, we worked together for three seasons, and then Nina unfortunately became ill and had to step away. But um, she was an extraordinary designer. She could see in millimeters like extraordinary uh i can remember uh one saturday morning after a very late night the night before being woken up by my blackberry going ping and it was an email <laughs> and it said nina to be done. I thought, that's spam and i was going to delete it and i didn't i opened it even though my head was bursting and, and I, it said my name's nina to be i got your name from a friend and i've written 123 letters and nobody's answered back but she said you'd at least answer me and i want to make my own shoe collection and uh, so that's part of what I do as a consultant. I, I take uh, makers to some of the best factories in Italy mm -hmm. to get fashion or scarves or accessories made. And uh, so I, I read this and, and uh, I sort of typed, I said, yeah, I'll contact you later. And then I go, ping, another one back from her. And here's some of my work. And they were all paintings, uh, mainly of shoes. Uh, and but. One of them was a painting of a series of, of legs, women's legs, with these beautiful shoes on the end of them. But, but my quirky, mad brain saw them as horses at a starting gate, and I burst out laughing. And you know, I just thought, <laughs> okay. So then I typed back to her and said, look, I, I can introduce you to, to, to the factories that could make the, your shoes, but I need to see you face-to-face -face Monday, the Westbury, 4 o'clock. And this uh, girl came in. Uh, she looked quite nervous. She had a huge portfolio. And she came over and she showed me, well, she talked for a while about her experience and her training. And eventually I said, let me see the portfolio. And she nervously opened it. And it is the only time in my life that I ever questioned my own judgment. I just thought they cannot be this good. They just cannot be this good. So I gave her a challenge. I said, look, I, I need you to add one design into this. There's a missing link here from my perspective. So I'll meet you on Thursday and we'll see what happens. I went home and I rang my, I have a business partner in Italy, Giorgio Salman. I rang Giorgio and said, get me into five shoe factories in two weeks time. And, and, and we have this trick that we bring you to a moderately good one, a really bad one, and then a great one to get your eye in. Right. So um, on the Thursday, we met in the Westbury, Nina and I, and yes, she had done better than I had expected. I said to her, look, I've already lined up some factories. We're going to Italy and we'll be picked up at the airport. We'll be driven around for two days, back to the airport and home. And so great. And we went to um, the first factory, which would have been um, uh, one of the, what I call the medium level. And we had a procedure. We were going to talk about everything, uh, about you know where can he get us the leather? Can he get us lasts and so on and so forth? And eventually he was getting a bit impatient and I said, show him the, the, the portfolio. And on the third shoe, he just jumped up and started shouting in Italian. And she doesn't speak any Italian, even though she's an Italian descent. I can order two beers in Italian <laughs> and that's it. And he took out his phone and he started shouting into the phone. I said, oh no, we've been thrown out of the first factory. And Giorgio said, no, we're not. He says, you've got to go where he makes for Jimmy Chu. Oh, wow. wow. What was her reaction to this? Whatever uh, about We you. almost had to put her in the boot of the car <laughs> to take her to where they made for Jimmy Choo. So we went to, to the, the, the factory where they made for Jimmy Choo. And we, we went in and we were met by a man, probably in his 80s. And I, I, I will never forget, he was wearing an emerald green sweater, a purple shirt and orange jeans. And he had long grey hair. And he sort of said, oh, you're very welcome. You come with me and I show you. So we went into the factory and there was... Chanel pumps going around on the first line. Oh, wow. The Saint Laurent tribute uh, sandal was on the second one. They were hand building a boot for Louis Vuitton in the corner. They were doing a shoe for Alexander uh, Delacroix on another line. And he picked up the, 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 the Chanel pump as if it was a small baby. Mm -hmm. And he sort of handed it to her very carefully. And, uh, and then that was it. The tour was over. And he said, oh, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to come. And the other guy said, no, 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 we go upstairs. So we went upstairs and we had coffee and she put the portfolio on the desk. And he, again, got to the third shoe and he jumped up and he said, did you design this shoe? And she said, yes, I did. I want to make this shoe. Just like that? Yeah. And it was just, well, wow. we, we actually didn't go to him in the end. We went to another factory that I'd known from previously. 
and um, she made the shoes and um, we, we, we showed them in Brown Thomas for the first season really successfully. She got so much publicity in Ireland in that launch season. Uh, then we started to show them uh, to some buying agents in Paris and Bergdorf's uh, and Brown's in London and people were all interested in them and Bergdorf's were about to write the order for that third season when she became ill. Uh, but she was extraordinary uh, as a designer, very assured as a, as a not cocky in any way, but mm. she knew what she was doing. She understood luxury like many people don't. Uh, and it was an extraordinary experience. Mm. And I mean, you know, you will recall that because that's a standout moment. And obviously the way in which that happened, that's not going to happen kind of every day. And it struck me there, you know, that that would have been a huge moment in, in her life and something that she would have been recalling very much so as well. And are, are there are, are there many moments like that in your life? Because you're facilitating somebody else. Is there is there any moment kind of even earlier in your life that, that you remember kind of being taken aback by that, like in your in your career or fashion or otherwise? No, they were just things some of us did together. Um, I don't know whether we got away with them or or, or we engineered them in, in such a way, but there, there were things that, that we did. There's there's nothing like um, on a big show. Like I, I don't do what those com airs did back years ago. I sit on the floor with the audience and I still operate my own sound, right? Do you? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because you, you, the pace of the show comes through your fingertips on the yes. fader, you know. Different records now, isn't it? Uh, well, well yeah, it's, it's CDs now yeah. and, it's, and some of it is digital, yeah, you know, yeah. and we've started to use digital backdrops and yeah. things like that, you know, where in a second we can go from the Arctic to the Sahara, you know, as a backdrop. Yes. Uh, and uh, music is really important to, to, to me in, in that regard. But... Um, to be in in a situation where you can feel the audience jump to their feet and roar approval, mm. like uh, that's very special. Uh, always has been. I for years I used to produce uh, when they used to do a physical show, the, the Limerick School of Art show, and we used to do it in the theatre uh, out at UL, that raked seating, and those nights were like the World Cup. You know, it was just <laughs> the energy in the room would, would, would power the country for a year. You know, uh, the arc show we have uh, always as a finale to the first half, we will have two models uh, topping and tailing the scene, two professionals and four women who've survived cancer. And they're called the Archangels. Oh, wow. And a designer is picked to dress them for the night. You want to be there for that. Oh, well, I have goosebumps now. We how just the roof stays on that building. Yeah when people jump up and roar their approval, you know, that's, that's magic. That has nothing to do with me. That's all of us together. It's the, the lighting designers, the stage manager, the models, everybody just holding it together and delivering it to the audience. And they saying, we love this. You yeah. Know, that's yeah. special. Yeah. Incredibly special, incredibly special. And I suppose as well, um, really an honor to be involved in something like that then you know and to be able to bring kind of your expertise uh to something it's, it's still a professional show but to have that other dimension and to make people no, but there are other moments that are equally important like i sometimes work with small one person craft enterprises and to see them going in the wrong direction with an idea and suddenly turning around and building their little brand and creating their website and selling into a store or to see people coming to the create interviews at Brown Thomas, you know, and getting great advice from the store, getting a little bit of help from me to maybe tweak what they're doing. And then you see them go into the store and perform so well. It's just great to be involved in that. Mm. You know, um, that's the side of the business that I like. I, I love the, the, the collaborations and uh, people might learn from some of my experience, but every time I work with somebody like that, I learn from them. Mm, yeah. And it's important for me to sit in the drafty garden sheds with the rain dripping in through the roof and because that's where you find real empathy with the people mm -hmm. you're working with. You know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a charmed life, but in ways that other people might not understand or appreciate. Uh, we don't hang around having cocktails at four o'clock every afternoon yeah. in my world. You know? Yeah. I hope sometimes you get a cocktail at four o'clock in the afternoon, somewhere along the way. Um, I was struck as well, you know, when, when you're uh, advising um, uh, advising or guiding um, 
it comes across so clearly that you have um, meticulous attention to detail and that your standards are quite high. And you were recalling your um, your father's attention to detail with his clothing. I was struck that you said he carried that through to when he was getting his suits made. Mm. And I wondered, was that something, is that how he always dressed? Did he always get everything made? And then was that something that was carried on with you? Was there a standard that you were expected to keep with your own presentation? Yeah, I, suppose back, I suppose back then... Uh, you know, there, there was a tailor in every town, yeah. you know, um, so so getting it made wasn't a big deal, but he would be getting his hunting uh, uh, jackets made in Callahan's and Dame Street and, and he would get a suit made at the same time, you know, okay. whatever, maybe once or twice a year. Uh, but um, dressing for occasions always seemed to be what was done in, in our family. Mm-hmm. Now, y- you were never, of course, uh, you were allowed freedom of expression as a, even as a child, you know. Now, you know, my mother might disapprove of, 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 of something or that, but, but it was never, you're not allowed to do this, that or the other. But mm-hmm. you, you, you would hear what I call guiding disapproval from time to time. Mm-hmm. But yes, it was an influence. And um, I uh, was lucky to meet uh, a tailor from Sligo called Joseph Martin, and uh, he makes my suits now. And uh, that they're, they're like a second skin. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, I, I'm constantly, um, uh, I constantly get stared at when I say, oh yeah, men in grey suits, because Joseph Martin has made a grey suit for me. But it, it's, it, I don't feel restricted in, in a suit, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I don't dress for anybody else other than myself. And sometimes when people say to me, uh, what do you describe as luxury? I can turn the collar of my Joseph Martin suit and say, see that little piece of thread there? Do you know what that is? And people look at me like I'm nuts. And it's for holding the stem of a rose in place. Oh. That to me is luxury. Yeah. It doesn't cost anything. Yeah. It's knowledge. Yeah. You know? And so knowledge around fashion to me is the foundation of luxury and then craftsmanship overlaid on that. Um, and Joseph is still in Sligo, um, saw a great piece in the Irish Times on him recently. Uh, and he, he makes uh, uniforms for military officers. Uh, he makes judges robes and things like that. But he also has clients around the world. You know, mm. he tells a great story about one lawyer who used to fly him to Vienna for fittings, you know, and uh, once ordering a, a Vicuna coat. And Joseph was so terrified because Vicuna is so expensive mm. that somebody would put a red hot iron on it that he actually insured the fabric while the suit was being made. <laughs> I don't believe yeah, which, is, which, yeah. which is an amazing story in itself, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, the, the, the way my, my parents dressed and regarded clothes and you looked after your clothes and, uh, and, that, and to this day, nobody but me irons my shirts really yeah 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 I you know I'm struck by that because um I when I said I do styling work it it, it was so accidental that I ended up in styling but um and it came from a love of vintage fashion Mm -hmm. and and I suppose this podcast is an extension of of that as well um and and one of the things I always say you know I love the story I love the imagined story of where it was but I say to people you know like look at the craftsmanship of some of these pieces and the attention to detail and and it's and, and when people are buying now, I'm saying, you know, maybe think about future collectibles. I'm not saying everyone has to go and buy vintage, but if you were to take something now and the attention to detail with which it is made, the nice fabrics, you know, obviously it depends on different people's circumstances. One of the easiest ways to be sustainable is to love what you buy and care for it. And buy the best quality you can. Yes. And, and it's, it's interesting you say that. When I worked at IWS as part of that student design competition show, I began to invite people, international designers who bought Irish, who used Irish fabric, you know, from McNutts or there were 20, 30 mills in the country back then. You know, you had McNutts, McGee's, Castle Island, Connemara Fabrics, uh, Emblem Weavers in Wexford and so on. So I, I would trawl around Europe for, for maybe uh, people who are making an Irish fabric. And I remember um, uh, one of the Italian menswear companies, Nino Ceruti, was actually using fabrics from a mill called Hills in Lucan. Mm. And they sent me in a man's jacket. And uh, the the show was an all all women's wear show, but this they sent in this jacket, and I remember trying it on, and it was my exact size. And for the first time in my life, this jacket felt made me feel very different. It was like, oh, this it just seemed to sit so beautifully, and 
from then on, I, I, I began to say to myself, whenever I can, I'm going to try and afford a fit like that, you know, yes. if I'm buying something. That will become the benchmark. And then uh, I, I realized that if I bought quality, whether it was footwear, shirts, jackets or whatever, that they, they would last. And I don't like throwing out my clothes. Mm. I have clothes in my wardrobe that are 15, 20 years mm. old. And funnily enough, uh, at the end of the first lockdown, a journalist phoned me one day and said, so what, what are you buying now that we're all let out again? And I said, nothing really, because I might buy a new, a new sweater. And if I do, I'll buy a cashmere sweater. Uh, and Because my wardrobe's full of good clothes. Mm. And people say, oh yeah, cashmere sweaters. Well, that you can afford it. But I have a cashmere sweater that's 12 years old mm. and it gets washed about twice a month in a washing machine. The quality's there, you yeah. know, it was an investment. So yeah. I probably spend far less, even though I'm involved in the fashion business, than people who are not involved in fashion business every mm. year on clothes now because the quality, you know. You know, and I think that probably is a misconception that someone in, in fashion will have loads and loads and loads and loads of clothes. I feel like actually when people really love clothes and when they um, really do care about kind of sustainability and, and before it, sustainability became the kind of buzzword, it, it just was this... Um, uh, innately cared about what what I'm buying, where am I buying it from, how am I caring for it, how long will it last, and these were just things that before the thirty wear rule, or which is which is great advice, you know, yeah, yeah. to anyone um, to think how many different ways they can wear something before they buy it. But I think anyone I know that 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 works in fashion and really really loves clothes, it's not that they have reams and reams of it. It's just that they adore what they have. And also, if we really loved what we have, why would we also why would we be wanting to buy more and more all the time? You know, I feel like let's have our love affairs with, and with some, those pieces. Yeah, we and have. some people would say that fashion designers themselves are the worst dressed people in the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of my friends are fashion designers. Just those just seem to be in the same piece of black jersey. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I saw a quote from you which uh, really tickled me. It was about sustainability, and I'm paraphrasing and probably horribly, but it was something. <laughs> no, I about, know what you're going to say. <laughs> About the um about the narrative having to change that people shouldn't all we need to change people from think maybe you'll know it. it's about J cloths yeah that <laughs> it, sustainability is not about recycling old J cloths or old hosiery yeah. it's about small production runs high quality uh, it, it's about thoughtfulness like that and the other thing about it is we have a lot of people ranting and raving about sustainability at the moment uh, and ethics and they're their answer from a sustainability front is to shut down all the factories in Bangladesh. Yeah. What do we do with the jobs? Mm -hmm. Where do the people, you know, go? I've been in some of the factories mm. that they want to shut down. I've been in particular in factories in Morocco where there's a doctor in every factory, mm. where you get two solid meals in the factory, where um, people are happy in there. And if you have a job in Morocco in some of those factories, you are doing very well indeed. Mm. Uh, and I've seen the government there uh, to take great care to nurture that approach, that ethical approach to, to work. Uh, but yeah, I've been in lots of factories where people are very, very happy and glad they have mm. a job. And, you know, it's very easy to, uh, to pick on what people ter term as fast fashion. But not everybody has the same salary. Mm. Not everybody can afford to buy uh, expensive garments. Uh, and so what, what's called fast fashion does have a role to play. Now, that doesn't mean we can't control it. It is unforgivable that companies overproduce uh, and then flog off in, in, in uh, outlets and so on, or worse still, literally use um, clothing for landfill. Uh, but uh, And what drives me wild is when people then pick on pennies before they pick on H&M yeah. or, or Zara. Uh, or mango, uh, and if you go on the on the, on the Premark website, you will see the brilliant programs they run, specifically run for women in those disadvantaged regions of the world. You know, mm. so we just need to be a little bit more thoughtful. There, there are two brilliant books out at the moment. One called Unraveled, which talks about uh, the, this whole challenge uh, of sustainability, and the other is called The Day the World Stops Shopping. Uh, but both of them are very balanced in their approach. So mm -hmm. it's not just let's close the factories and mm. to hell with everybody who's thrown out on the street. You know, yeah. it's a much more reasoned approach. And that's what we're going to have to do. And we're going to have to do the same with climate change. 
Like we, we just can't take everyone's car away until we have better public transport. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, I'm 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 fascinated in what you're saying there because um, uh, I'm I'm struck by there are so many people that are in this sustainable field and a lot of influencers who have a big voice um, that are choosing to talk about sustainability and they're um, banging a very loud drum about uh, greenwashing and accusing a lot of the um, fast fashion companies of greenwashing. And and I'm always very torn because I think, well, if, let's say H&M, you mentioned them a minute ago, if H&M have their main line and then a conscious collection, if more people are buying from their conscious collection, is that not using their euro to say, yes, we yeah. want more of that? Yeah. And also they can't, move they can't change overnight so do we need to have a little bit of balance in yeah. that narrative h&m isn't a stupid company it's one mm. of the most successful companies in the fashion business and mm. and they they have responded already to the consumer mm. but you know the consumer hasn't responded a hundred percent towards the idea nor 50 percent mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people as you say banging the drum and they don't know what they're talking about they've never been in a factory they they, they spew out various uh, facts or or pretend facts that have no substance in reality. So I I had the good fortune uh, about two years ago to to be at an event. A couple of the fashion councils around Europe got together in Brussels, and um, where we've been trying. Unfortunately, the pandemic has interrupted to set up a European-wide fashion council, if you mm-hmm. like. Uh, but we had some speakers there, including a girl called Camilla Jorgensen, and she is the sustainability director at. Um, uh, the best group, which which is a, a a big group in the fast fashion space. Now, this girl is an activist with Greenpeace as well. Okay. So she was there to talk to us about sustainability, mm. and she had this brilliant formula: ASAP, ASAP, as sustainable as possible, as soon as possible. Okay. And that's like how it. we'll get there. Yeah. You know, yeah. we won't get there in one giant leap. We'll get there in tiny baby steps. Yeah. One after the other. That's how you build a wall. The foundation. One brick, another brick on top of it, another brick on top of that. That's how we will get there. Yeah. And we need to bring consumers with us because some of the products that have been put out there are, uh, are, are not comfortable, some of the fabrics, but there are amazing fabrics coming down the line. I saw an example of a synthesized silk made from orange peel. Uh, it was a tiny square in a glass jar uh, and certainly it had the same handle and feel. We are making great strides, but then there are other uh, uh, synthetic fabrics that are not kind to your skin, mm. that are not comfortable to wear. And and look, fashion is a tactile product, mm. you know, just like furniture is. So if it doesn't feel right, we aren't going to buy it. Mm. You know, so one voice is not the world's consumer voice. You know? yeah. and, and we have a lot of these people now trying to find their 15 minutes of fame shouting about sustainability. Mm. So let's move towards ethical sustainability. Yes, but we have to put the, the bricks in the right order and we have to take the right direction to find yeah. the destination we all hope for. Was there ever a case when you rebelled with your clothing? Because, you know, you, you <laughs> clearly are... Um... There was a case when I did some outrageously stupid things, maybe. Uh, like, I... I uh, I, I don't want to give the impression that I live my life in suits. I, I don't I like I, I like jeans, good jeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so there's two sides to the way I dress. One is for formal occasions when I'm working at serious work, but I also dress casually at work when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But I do remember uh, buying once buying a gold lame shirt with a frill down the front <laughs> that would have been really ideal for Jimi Hendrix to wear. <laughs> Uh, that and I also had this uh, checkerboard mod shirt that was blue and white on one side and white and blue on the other and the sleeves were all turned and that sort of thing and it probably looked very ridiculous but we all have to go through those phases where we're making a, 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 a statement of self-expression you know? yeah but then we get to the point where we understand that sometimes a dress is just a dress and sometimes it's a strategy mm-hmm I think a lot about clothing as armor and when I work with them um, personal clients and maybe just because I've had um 
babies in the last couple of years, I've more kind of new moms coming to me and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, looking mm-hmm. for that advice because you kind of do, and you do lose your way. And I didn't expect to because I love my clothes and I always kind of loved expressing myself. Um, but I think of it as armor. And I say to them, you know, if you're, if you're getting up in the morning, I advise sometimes it mightn't be the kind of most creative or um, kind of spontaneous thing to do. But maybe if you can give yourself even half an hour on a Sunday and think about what you have ahead for the week. And if that's literally going from to drop the kids off and coming back or maybe going for coffee but to to kind of um identify some pieces that you're going to put on you so it's easy to get into it in a chaotic day but that you're going to feel good in because I think that feeling of I hope no one sees me wearing that it's it's it puts you at a disadvantage well I I worked on a project last year which is probably the most stressful one I ever worked on and uh I found it very useful uh like we we would have regular zoom calls you know and and they were pretty high high end high pressure calls I found it good those mornings to put on the best pair of shoes I had, a crisp jacket, and sometimes even a tie, mm. right? And people would look at John and say, well, you've got a tie on. You know? <laughs> uh, and, but, but you felt, uh, uh, and I understand when you use the word armor, I, I find comfort is the best armor of the lot, yeah. you know? So that's why I try to buy clothes that are uh, of a certain quality and that are comfortable. The other thing, and you've hinted at it there, I think that's really useful is, not to give yourself the stress every morning of having to pick something to mm. wear, but to to just pack it all into Saturday afternoon where you prepare for the week. Yeah. So I've got all my shirts ready for the week and I've got trousers I'm going to wear. Whatever. And just, as you say, think about the days of the week. And then there's no drama every morning and you're not running out looking like you mismatched everything, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. that's good advice. And you know, when you're thinking about um, kind of you know, your life so far from from watching uh, your dad in, in the riding gear and then all through the different shows and jobs that you've had as well. Is there any outfit, is it the gold lame shirt? Is there any outfit when you look back that you think to yourself, you know, that really, that's me, that's Eddie? No, well, um, people would be surprised now at my answer, I would imagine. Um, what is, the, I, I would almost say the real me, but, but I, if I was to dress in my favorite clothes it might be a pair of good chinos uh, a denim shirt not with pearl stud buttons but a denim Mm -hmm. shirt a nice jacket uh, a a comfortable pair of shoes uh, and possibly and and I I love the trend towards uh, the shoes we're seeing at the moment I think it started with football managers all wearing them on the sideline and everyone's wearing them but they're they're comfortable and mm. particularly if they're in suede without the nice fabrics yeah. but good leather shoes otherwise I mean I, I when I go to a city I walk all day if I can and good shoes are essential for that uh, and the other thing that it's a bit of a signature of mine is uh, a Hermes pocket square oh. and that that I've, I, I use that as a sort of a signature sometimes so if I'm going into do a workshop or that, and I don't want to wear a tie because it's maybe the summer or whatever. We just want to be a bit more casual. That sort of is a statement piece, and yeah. people see it and remember. Yeah, it, you know. the attention to detail and yeah, it's the, just yeah, a little thing. That's me, you know. Yeah. What's yeah. he doing with the piece of silk sticking out? But, <laughs> but I don't care. I dress for myself. But that's so. And, and then I like a suit that's a second skin. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are still too many logos at weddings and people wearing their Gucci earrings with their Chanel belt, with their Hermes bag. Mm. And, you know, and it, that's a pity. Um, those brands individually all have beautiful work on offer. Some of them are investment pieces. I mean, Hermes bags are selling for like mega bucks at mm. the moment, you know, in, in, in sales, in auction rooms and so on around the world. So some people regard them as investment pieces, but it's a pity when we we don't understand a look and we start mixing all these logos mm. together. Like mm. you shouldn't be wearing just the, the bag because there's a logo on it. You should be wearing the bag because you like the bag. Mm. You know. Mm. I suppose it's yeah, it's it's different people's interpretation of what's special. So to some people that might mean um, they've achieved something maybe by by getting that, and therefore that's a logo. Whereas someone else might think it's special because of the way it has been made or because it's been handed down. Or you know, I suppose that that's the different interpretation. But what I really enjoy at the moment is when there's occasions. I see it much more with my friends now. People are sharing, people are lending, people are borrowing, and then people are borrowing. Borrowing, um, oh, oh, it's becoming, you know, hiring. Yeah, as now, yeah, yeah, and, yeah exactly. and some of the luxury groups are getting into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Um, Gucci are doing it. I think Valentino, Valentino are doing Valentino vintage, and 
Gucci are doing Gucci Vault or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're reclaiming, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, what's, yeah, yeah, exactly. What's been happening there as well? There's um, there are so many different people that you work with, and you, you've mentioned, you know, kind of bigger brands and and um, fashion fashion companies, and then uh, small small. I'm just going to say young designers. That's not necessarily true, but maybe um, new designers or smaller designers mm. as well. And I suppose. You have had to, as you we've spoken about or we've touched on, um, learn in order to advise. Um, mm. But is there anything that would be kind of universal for anyone in the in the fashion industry now, or maybe timeless? Um, that just a, a piece of advice that you feel like everyone should kind of heed. Well, never stop learning is one. Yes, you, you, you know, uh, there's another that it becomes more and more important as the years go by. Listen to experience before opinion. Mm. That can be hard to decipher, can't oh, it? Oh, it's so hard because there's so many people out there. Have, you know what I'd do if I were you? Yeah. They've never drawn a single sketch. They've never been in a single factory. They've never understood the, the, the schedule of the seasons where you start with the tiny piece of thread two and a quarter of years beforehand and you work through the the yarn process the weaving process the, the 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 buying and selling processes the the constructing the samples or the prototypes the deciding on the collection that they don't understand that, that they weighed in uh, and i i'm afraid i i am allergic to influencers okay. particularly irish influencers because they have a limited number of followers they're uh, promoting me today, you tomorrow, and someone else the day after. They are indiscriminate with the, the brands they mix together, uh, and they do not operate the same way as influencers operate internationally. I was just talking to somebody this morning who runs the e-commerce division of a major luxury group, and she's an Irish girl, you know, and she puts out a brief, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. And if you're the influencer that can deliver that, we'll talk. Mm -hmm. If not, we won't be working together. Mm. And, and that's how we should. Our brand is such a precious thing mm. and we should protect it. Now, we have to understand it first. So we need to know who we are, what our brand is, and we have to protect that against all comers and particularly people who would exploit us, you know, for their own. Um, yeah. And I think that... Um, we all have a responsibility ourselves as well. I know sometimes when I was kind of first starting and doing, I never call myself a stylist because I'm still like, there's a stylist. I do some styling work because I feel like, you know, these are these are people that just have years of experience and are incredibly talented. And people would come to me and ask me a question and I'd be panicking thinking, I'm going to have to find an answer. I'm going to have to find. And actually, wouldn't we all be better off if I said, you know what? I don't know that. I'm not the person to speak to here. I know someone who has wisdom yeah. <laughs> that they would share with you. Let's let's start talking to the people that actually Yeah, know. And, and, and with regard to styling, you know, I when I had my agency, um, uh, I represented photographers and some very good ones indeed too. So, and I worked with, with so many of them over the years. And I also represented some very good stylists. Mm. But good stylists are people who are looking to tomorrow, not yesterday. Mm, mm. And a lot of stylists are running around with last year's Vogue under their arm, mm. trying to copy it. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I have great admiration for stylists who can see into the future yeah. or who can see an individual way of presenting something. I think that's, that's really informative. It's, it's engaging. It's, it's great for everyone. It makes everybody think. It makes consumers think. It makes designers think. I think that's when stylists are at their best. Mm. You know? And it's so exciting. And, you know, it's nearly when you were talking about how that first show came together as well. It's about, clearly you were brave and there was there was a coming together of creative minds and there was an excitement and an energy. And I think that that's infectious. So I agree with you. They're the people that you're kind of buzzing off, you know. Um, I could keep talking to you for another hour, but I won't because you've given me lots of time and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So before I let you go, Eddie, I suppose... Have you any words on, you have touched on how people are maybe not dressing for the right occasion in your opinion or, but if someone was listening today and they think, but I'm comfortable in my, in my football jersey, like why is it important how we present ourselves? Why should we be taking the time to consider it and putting our energy and money into it? Well, we, we don't live in this world alone, you know, so we, we have to consider the effort that other people make to invite us to things, mm -hmm. you know, and the other people they maybe invite. So we have a responsibility to them as well uh, as their guests. 
uh, or as their business partners or as collaborators. And I, I, I just think it's nice to get up in the morning and wash your face uh, mm-hmm. before you go out to a meeting, you know. We, we don't all have to go around dressed as toffs all the time or any of the time. But I think it's nice to show respect for people who show us consideration. Mm, mm. And for ourselves, I suppose, as well. Uh, yeah. And for ourselves. Well, yeah. again, going back to my own uh, case, I don't dress for other people. Um, I, I dress for myself. Uh, and sometimes I have used that, the address as a dresser, address as a strategy. I've gone to meetings where everybody else is buttoned up and bolted up in their suits and I'm in my jeans and denim shirt. And I've got away with murder at those mm. meetings. But that was being used as a particular strategy to mm. go in and be able to, to speak much freer than the others could, not to follow the party line. And there are times when everybody else in the room is wearing jeans and I'm wearing a suit and a tie. Mm. And I'm comfortable doing that. Yeah. So everybody should be comfortable in their skin and what they're wearing. But I, I think we do have to consider the circumstances we're in from time to time and the other people involved in those circumstances. And that's it. It's, it's, not, it's not a Bible by which everybody uh, um, should live or be beaten over the head with. It's just, I think it's just a question of respect. Mm. And there being power in our clothing, I think, as well. For, oh, there is, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Adishalan, thank you so much. Thanks for answering my call <laughs> when no one else answers phones anymore. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you very much.